Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hello, my name's Greg King. I'm from the Royal North Shore Hospital where I'm a respiratory physician, Sydney University and from the Woolcock Institute of Medical Research. And my area of research at the university and at the Woolcock Institute has been in airways diseases. So I'm going to talk to you today about the role of triple therapy, a relatively new advent, particularly in asthma, but speaking about its role in airways diseases in general. I have some declarations here, which you'll see on the slide. Now I'm going to start off about an using an introduction about airways diseases in general. And as you know, the labels that we have for airways diseases are asthma, COPD, and asthma slash COPD or overlap syndrome. Now, in reality, this is what airways disease looks like to me, and there's increasing recognition amongst uh, the international airways community that this really is the case. And I'm sure from your own experiences that people rarely fit into um, pigeonholes when it comes to looking at airways diseases. So there's smoking-related airflow obstruction, there's variable airway narrowing, there's bronchitis and mucus hypersecretion, which is the production of mucus with cough, and then there's airflow obstruction that doesn't fit into anything. Um, there's no history of occupational exposure, no smoking history, etc. Now I'm going to define airways diseases in, or the labels of airways diseases that we use in the following way. This is what I'm going to refer to as asthma. And asthma patients have no history or have an insignificant smoking history that is less than 10 pack years. So one pack year is smoking one packet of cigarettes per day that has 20 cigarettes. So that's the old fashioned 20 cigarettes per pack. So you have to adjust things according to that. So smoking one packet of cigarettes for one, pack, for one year is one pack year. And it's characterised by variable airway narrowing, which ideally we should see and have objective proof of. And the common way to do this is using a peak flow diary. 10% variability, 10% of best is normal. Between 10 to 20% is a grey area. And more than 20% variability from the best value is significant airway narrowing, i.e. Um, bronchoconstriction. And you can also see significant variability by bronchodilator testing. And we often do supportive testing, and that is airway hyper-responsiveness testing or bronchial challenge testing. That's a very useful test. I'm defining COPD in this manner. There is a significant smoking history of at least 20 pack years. So between 10 and 20 pack years, that's more of a gray area of exposure. Very occasionally, we might see COPD or fixed airflow obstruction in occupational injury. and in in, in some countries, it's due to biomass fuel burning like coal and wood, usually in a domestic setting. Airflow obstruction we need to prove by spirometry. So to diagnose COPD, you need to send your patient to the local lab and have spirometry done that confirms that the post-bronchodilator spirometry is still obstructed. And by obstruction, I mean the FEV1 to FVC ratio is less than the lower limit of normal. And this is after adjustment for age and sex, because as we get older, the FEV1 to FEC ratio gets lower. And then, of course, there's reality. 
And reality, as I said before, is not people fitting into nice pigeonholes, but people overlap a lot. And you, you might call it asthma, COPD overlap. There are, other, there are other ways that this is described. So smoking at least 10-pack years, obstructed spirometry, all the things that I said before about COPD. There may be a past or strong family history of asthma. There may be even a personal history of asthma that suggests, um, uh, or a symptom cluster that suggests acute airway narrowing. For example, they go into cold air and they suddenly wheeze and they take a bronchodilator and it's rapidly better. They may have had asthma in childhood. They may have a history of atopy, that is eczema or rhinitis. So all these things are building a case that it sounds a bit like asthma in their history. So some important points about managing obstructive airways disease. And the first one is, uh, is something I say to our trainees many, many times over and over again. Symptoms can be extremely unreliable. My, my proposition is that you shouldn't rely on symptoms alone and that you need objective testing like any disease that we manage, whether it's diabetes or hypertension, we need objective measurements to guide us and confirm the diagnosis. Now, positive bronchodilator response, as defined by the usual uh, way, 12% of baseline and at least 200 mils in magnitude is very common and it's not diagnostic. So if we get a bunch of people that we say classically clearly have asthma and have never smoked, and then we get a bunch of patients who have, are labelled with COPD, heavy smoking history, and no hint of any asthma history, family history, atopy, bronchodilator responsiveness is equally common in both. So it's neither sensitive nor specific. So what, what is it useful for? Well, in asthma, if you believe that you have a person who sounds to you that has asthma, that is the asthma phenotype that I spoke about before, then a positive bronchodilator response is very useful. It confirms your suspicion that this is, this is asthma. You may go on and do peak flow recordings and look for that 20% variability, or you may not. You may be happy with just that. Now, in all other phenotypes that you're dealing with, and you'll hear this word phenotype more and more often as the way that we manage and assess airways disease progresses and and, and um, improves over time, that in all other phenotypes, that positive bronchodilator response probably really does, doesn't mean that much in terms of response to treatment and in terms of prognosis or risk. Now, if you, if you get a report from your laboratory and it says more than 400 mils bronchodilator responsiveness, that's starting to get very suggestive, although not completely reliable, it's starting to get very suggestive that there is a asthma phenotype component to this. Now the other thing about seeing bronchodilator responses is that it's an opportunity for you to ask that patient about his symptom perception. So symptoms are unreliable, can be very unreliable. Some may perceive a three or 400 mil change in FEV1 quite well, said yes, I didn't feel so well, I got the bronchodilator, I felt much better. You can be certain that that person has quite normal or average perception of airway narrowing. On the other hand, some people say, nope, had no symptoms beforehand, felt no different afterwards, and that alerts you to the fact that for that person, their symptoms may be unreliable. And it can be completely in the opposite direction. You may have a person who has a 10% improvement in FEV1 and said, oh, I felt much, much better with the bronchodilator. So that gives you insight and is an important piece of information.
So what about how I and others and probably our future of assessing airways disease? I've got all these boxes that give us a piece of information that gradually builds a picture or a phenotype for an individual patient. And it deals with, and, and they're in the, in the domains of allergic or non-allergic inflammation, maybe to do with reversibility that we see with bronchodilated testing, maybe to do with airway hyperresponsiveness, which I've actually left out on this slide, smoking history, symptoms, comorbidities like obesity, deconditioning, dysfunctional breathing, sleep apnea. And dysfunctional breathing is something that a lot of people don't know much about, but it's very important in a severe asthma clinic. So all these, all these particular factors will, in the end, build to paint, paint a picture of our patient. So I'd like to summarise that to say that diagnostic labelling is important, but in, in a way that you might not think. So if I tell a patient they have COPD, and they don't, and they've got asthma, of course everyone's going to look on the internet and do a search of what happens to COPD. They come back the next visit and say, Doctor, I, I've gone to check my will because I don't think I'm going to live more than five years. And, and I've seen that so many times that this is the effect of mislabeling or misdiagnosis. Of course, COPD, all the bad outcomes are related to severity and smoking history. And also, if you mislabel for whatever reason and it dictates your prescription, then we may both over-treat and under-treat our patients. And this was clearly shown tragically in, a British, in the RCP, the British Royal College of Physicians inquiry, about deaths and asthma. When patients were mislabeled as COPD, smoking-related disease, and they clearly had asthma, they went on to COPD treatment. That was responsible for death from asthma because, as you know, in asthma, inhaled corticosteroid treatment is extremely important. It's critical, in fact, because we know it prevents death and, and severe exacerbations. So how we label them probably matters. And I, I, if I see a patient who's got asthma, they've got airflow obstruction all the time. That is, over time, they've developed non-reversible airflow limitation. I call them this, asthma with fixed airflow obstruction. My, my colleagues or some other people might say they've got asthma with COPD, that's an overlap, or they may have COPD with an asthma component. So the labelling differs. Now how, how we get over that, I think we, as doctors, we must understand in our own mind what is driving that person's um, physiology, what's driving that person's symptoms, what's driving that person's um, outcomes, like exacerbations. Um, let's go on to treatment now. So inhaled corticosteroids I'll start with. We know that we have to give this an asthma for all the reasons I, st I stated before. They're effective, they're safe, and they almost certainly prevent death from asthma. We give them in severe COPD. And officially, the guide guidelines, as it were, or recommendations, and you see in our PBS criteria, that the FEV1 should be less than 50% of predicted, and they are frequent exacerbators, that is, recurrent exacerbations each year for which you give an antibiotic or a course of prednisone. But this, this criteria for COPD is very archaic. It dates back about 30 to 40 years, believe it or not. And nobody's really looked or addressed this, this, um, this criteria that we use, this arbitrary criteria very well, except there's more recent evidence that we should be more sensible, not so arbitrary, not have, not have um, 
clear cut points for the use of inhaled corticosteroids. So what might be useful? Well, we know that the markers of steroid responsiveness in particular is the blood eosinophil count. A blood eosinophil count in your patient with airways disease that is over 0.3 times 10 to the power of 9 per litre or another parlance 300 um, per deciliter, that indicates that they're more likely to respond to inhaled steroid treatment than not. Exhaled nitric oxide, a simple test that most laboratories offer now, high levels indicate the same. And I believe there's also a, a value in doing a therapeutic trial of inhaled corticosteroids. You're going to say to a person, I think it's worthwhile giving you a trial on this steroid puffer. Let's give it a go. I want to see you in a few months' time, see how you respond to it, see what your side effects are, and we can decide then where, whether it's useful for you or not. What about long-acting muscarinic antagonists? So they've been very well studied in trials of both asthma and COPD. And remembering when we look at asthma and COPD trials, they're highly selected patients. They're in fact a minority of patients because as you know, most of the patients that we treat and see have a mixture of both. Those muscarinic antagonists improve symptoms. The effect is much better in COPD in improving symptoms less of, a, of an effect in asthma, in improving asthma symptoms. It improves lung function, no question about that. Very consistent um, improvement seen in clinical trials. And it reduces exacerbations. Again, to, to my judgment, according to the clinical trials, a much better response in COPD than there is in asthma. So why, why give triple therapy? Why give three drugs, essentially, an inhaled corticosteroid, and two long-acting bronchodilators. Well, firstly, about giving two bronchodilators. Adding, adding two in is better than one alone, but it's not double. The effect is about 1.3, as a guess. So adding one and one gives you the effect, clinical effect of 1.3. Inhaled corticosteroid responsiveness, um, um, we would give that if we believe that steroid responsive inflammation is driving that particular person's disease. And when I mentioned to you about nitric oxide and blood eosinophil counts, they both uh, recognized biomarkers for what we call type two inflammation or, or an allergic tendency towards the inflammatory response. So that's why we, we would give logically inhaled corticosteroids. So how would we give so the way I think about triple therapy in the end is to start at the very start. You have a new patient, you take a thorough history, you do some tests, and you've got a thorough assessment of what you believe their phenotype to be. And you think that they are more on the asthmatic side. For example, they may have a trivial smoking history and they clearly have variable airflow obstruction. You would give them an inhaled corticosteroid first and you are then able to determine for that particular patient its benefit or lack of benefit. And you might determine that from their wheeze, their bronchodilator use, their breathlessness on exertion. You, I would argue you should check their lung function always when making a new diagnosis of airways disease. And you may assess it from any exacerbations that they have. If they have frequent exacerbations, you would fully expect that their exacerbation frequency and risk is going to decrease. You may, you may then add in either a LABA or a LAMA, depending on what you felt 
most, in most situations it would be ICS larva, of course, and the asthma phenotype, then you may then add in the llama if you felt that they needed it, but not if you didn't feel they needed it. And then you would proceed to a fixed dose triple once you established all of this. What about in the COPD phenotype? No history of asthma, low, low blood eosinophil counts, big smoking history, symptoms that are clearly consistent with what we believe to be COPD that you confirm on uh, spirometry. The, 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 the most common symptom being breathlessness on exertion. You would start with a bronchodilator and the preferred one for most people would be a llama. You may or may not decide to add in a LABA if you, dis if you felt that additional treatment was necessary. You may then want to add in an inhaled corticosteroid. Now, where, at what sequence you do it in, I don't think it particularly matters. But for this type of strong COPD type phenotype, you would start with likely a LABA and then progress from there. Either ICS added after that or a LABA. Once you determine, again, whether each of the components are beneficial or not, you would then proceed to fixed dose triple if you felt that appropriate. What about in a patient that you felt there were mixtures of both? For example, a person who has a strong family history of asthma or they may have had asthma in childhood, they may have had positive allergy tests in the past or had hay fever or still have hay fever, eosinophils are high and they have fixed airflow obstruction on their, on their spirometry. Or fixed is a common term that's used, but it's a, a bit of a mis misnomer because, as I said, often you will see positive bronchodilator responses. But the important thing is that after bronchodilator, their spirometry remains obstructed. And you believe that that, obstructed, that obstruction is at least partially driving their symptoms. So we then think, well, what are we trying to achieve in this particular person? What are our treatment goals and our criteria for success or failure? Breathlessness on exertion would be one. Activities of um, daily life would be another. Lung function would be one, but not, not such an important criteria in this. Exacerbation frequency is very important, of course, because exacerbations are such important events, major events, in a person who has airways disease. So I would tend to start with either ICS or ICS LABA. I say ICS LABA because if they've got airflow obstruction and you believe they're breathless because of this, you would then want to give them a long-acting beta agonist. So it seems sensible to start with an ICS LABA and you may then take them to triple therapy if you felt that was necessary and then on to fixed dose. So just to summarise that treatment regime, Use fixed dose triple only where you feel it's needed and you've proven and are satisfied in yourself that those three components of the drugs you're using are necessary. Do not initiate treatment with fixed dose triple therapy and I wouldn't in initiate treatment with triple therapy normally. After all, we need to determine the side effects as well. Many people don't tolerate uh, long-acting bronchodilators, either beta agonist or muscarinic antagonist because of their side effects and I wouldn't hesitate to withdraw in that situation. Think about the phenotype you're dealing with, and as, a, as I've stated, I like to think of them in those sort of three broad categories, a very COPD type phenotype, clearly an asthma phenotype, and the majority have a mixture of both. So what, what sort of options do we have currently on the PBS? We've got two metered dose inhalers, pressurized inhalers. They're the um, Brez tree, and the Trimbo. 
So both the metered dose inhalers are for COPD, and therefore COPD patients who have got severe disease, that is exacerbations, severe impairment of lung function, symptoms, etc. The two dry powder inhalers you see on the right of the screen are for asthma. So you all know the breeze inhaler from the existing device used in COPD. You'll also know the elliptid device used in asthma and COPD. The unique thing about the, the elliptid device is that it's used, you can use it for both asthma and COPD, but for asthma there are now two inhaled corticosteroid doses. So it's important for you to know what the inhaled steroid dose is that your asthma patient requires when, you, when you're giving this medication. I'm going to try and illustrate this with a case that I've seen very recently and I've seen him over many years, since 2015. He was 84 at the time and he had asthma as a young man and returned when he was 50. He had bronchiectasis diagnosed in 2012 on a background history of pneumonia, long-standing cough and mucus production, benign prostatic hypertrophy, he was a lifelong non-smoker and those were his current medications. He used a lot of ventilized salbutamol and he'd had courses of prednisone with good effect. He felt that they were quite beneficial. He was hospitalized and hence I got to meet him. Since then he'd had increasing mucus production, he was more breathless, reduced daily exercise capacity because of the breathlessness and the cough. His peak flows, which are normally between 250 and 300 litres per minute, had decreased and he clearly had very obstructed spirometry. He had no response to bronchodilator and in 2009 his spirometry was 1.6 on 3.0. His blood count demonstrated an eosinophil count of 0.4 times 10 to the power of 9 per litre, and his sputum culture grew no pathogens. This man has never smoked. His CT scan shows very mild bronchiectasis. It's, it's marginal, but what it does show is that the airways in the right-hand cross um, axial scan, the airways are quite markedly thickened, and all the little lines and dots that you see in the lung parenchyma is actually the small airways that were plugged with mucus and the medium-sized airways that were plugged with mucus. So the CT scan confirmed that whatever bronchiectasis he had was very mild, but his main problem was actually tons of mucus that was causing impaction symptoms and contributing to airflow obstruction. He'd had recent a recent infective exacerbation of complex airways disease, which I might place in the mixed category, which I label in my own head as mixed, had long-standing asthma, fixed airflow obstruction, worsening lung function, he had minimal bronchiectasis, lots of mucus hypersecretion and impaction. So the treatment for him was really focused on physical therapy, exercise, mucus clearance, drainage. I increased his inhaled corticosteroid dose by changing him to a metered dose inhaler, high dose, as you see there. I showed him how to use a puffer spacer which we reviewed on a regular basis because all the devices work as long as they use them properly but I wanted to give this man a trial of high dose inhaled corticosteroid therapy hence I chose this dose and this delivery method and over time he improved which you can see here his lung function which had gone down if you on a 1.29 improved he felt significantly better his FEV1 improved significantly. He retained a positive bronchodilator response, which was in keeping with, an, with a variable airflow obstruction type. He has this asthma 
that is confirmed. And you can see his peak flow has risen from around 200 to 250 up to above 300, close to 350. So that was very pleasing to see. But five years later, he's now got worse again. He's more breathless. And remember now, he's, he's 90. And he's still extremely active, still really cares about everything, has a great quality of life. But he's been to emergency department because he's more breathless. The cardiac examination is unremarkable. He has airflow obstruction again, but not that much different from before. His current treatment was a lower dose of inhaled corticosteroid, which, for which he was on maintenance treatment. But his doctor had added Alama, Aclidinium. He felt that that was beneficial. The CT scan showed very minimal mucus plugging and his chest was clear. His eosinophil count much the same. Sputum culture repeated unremarkable. He did not have ABPA, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, based on the specific Ig to aspergillus was negative. And I increased his fluticasone for motorol puffer to a higher dose. And he said to me he wasn't using the spacer. So we went through the spacer use again. And two months later, he was feeling much better again. His peak flows had improved. He was increasing his exercise capacity. And then two months later, after that, he was well again. We reduced his um, fluticasone ephemeral dose back to the smaller dose that he was on before. He continued the llama. And if he remains well from this point onwards, having seen him recently, then the plan will be then to change him onto a fixed dose triple. So that brings us to the end of the, the uh, talk about where triple comes in. And I've summarized it using the schema. Now the schema um, hopefully depicts what the, um, um, the two arms, using asthma, the asthma phenotype, as the one that dictates inhaled corticosteroid use, using all the helpful bits of information that I said previously, for example, the um, blood eosinophil count. So if you feel that a person has either an asthma or a mixed asthma and COPD type of phenotype, then you would start with an inhaled corticosteroid-containing regimen, whether it be single therapy or dual therapy. And then you would add a, a llama in if you felt if that is necessary. Each step of the way, predetermining what your criteria for success are or for failure are. If it fails, there's no benefit, it would be illogical for you to continue that medication for that particular individual. But having proceeded through the steps, you may then end up with either treating that patient with either single therapy, double therapy, or triple therapy. If you feel that they don't have any of the asthma phenotype, no allergic symptoms, no family history of asthma, no personal history of asthma, low eosinophil counts, big smoking history, you would then head down more the COPD type treatment, which you're very aware of. And starting predominantly with a LAMA or a LABA, you can do either. Proceeding to double therapy if you want and feel necessary, and then adding in an inhaled corticosteroid if you think necessary. And again, each step of the way, predetermining what the criteria for success, success are, or for failure are. And then at the end of it, they will end up either on single, dual, or triple therapy. But you would have got there and made a logical decision and not given them the drugs that they don't need or are not effective. So just to summarize, a comprehensive assessment of airways disease 
allows you to have a rational approach to prescription. Um, it's only a guide and a framework, and I'm describing a guide that I use, but a framework that is now increasingly popular and increasingly discussed in the international um, research fraternity, clinical research, um, physicians in the, in the area of airways disease. Based on those phenotypes that I hope I hope I described for you fairly thoroughly. I, I really like to try and promote and take a, a common sense approach um, to managing airways disease and it's always based on clinical judgment, always. Like having a fixed regime for everything, I'm not in favour in favor of, but to have treatment that is based on your sound clinical judgment and thorough assessment. And there are many other factors too which we have not even touched on which are really important and that is for the patient preferences for devices, whether they can use a particular device or not, and of course the things that affect their adherence to the, to the treatment that you're, you're going to prescribe. So that finishes the talk today and I'm, very, very, um, I'm hopeful that what I've said today will help you in your day-to-day -day practice. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.